Hi, and welcome to Forest for the Future, the podcast series where we talk about what is evolving in FSC and what innovations are coming up. Today, we are going to dive into the rules and the different levels of rules in the world. FSC sits within the realm of voluntary rule sets, which companies and forest owners can choose to adhere to to gain the benefits connected to being able to show the world that they care about the forest. And then there's a different set of rules, a set of rules that are set by law on a national or international level. During the last couple of years, we have, finally, some might say, seen legislators increasingly develop and pass rule sets that safeguards forests, protects consumer interests, and try to mitigate climate change. But what happens to a system like FSC when these legislations get adopted and there's a gap between what the rules of law require and how we are doing things? Do we just adjust to fit or do we stand our ground? That is the topic of this podcast, perhaps made more relevant than ever by the upcoming legislation, European Deforestation Regulation, or EUDR. To help me learn much more about what is up and down, I've invited Kim Carstensen, our CEO, and Anand Punja, Chief Engagement and Partnership Officer. Let me start first with a disclaimer. If you turned on this episode to learn much more about what will FSC do to support our certificate holders in adhering to the EUDR legislation on a very tangible level, you won't find that in this episode. And the reason for that is very simple. The legislative text is not finalized yet, so we don't know for sure what will be required, and therefore we don't know what you need to do. But don't worry, we will do a full episode on the very tangible level as soon as the text is final. This episode will focus on FSC and legislation compliance in general, using EUDR as an example, but focusing more overall on why and what a system like FSC should do to adjust to legislation when it is passed, if anything at all. Enough introductions, let's dive into the conversation. Anand, could we start with a brief oversight? How many different regulations out there do you know of that impacts or has potential impact to FSC, inside FSC, outside FSC? How many are there? Currently, EUTR timber regulation is the one that is in play, let's say, that has one of the most significant impacts on FSC, along with other legislation such as the Lacey Act in the US, the Australian Illegal Timber Logging Act, I think that's what it's called. So I would say the suite of acts that started to kind of roll out in the early 2010s around trying to tackle a kind of governmental approach to illegal logging. They're the ones that are currently the most significant, that have the most significant impact on FSC systematically. There are a number of initiatives that are being discussed as part of the EU Green Deal in particular, which the EU, we follow it closely because we find the EU is probably the most progressive geopolitical leader in this space in terms of progressive sustainability type regulations. So what the EU tends to do, others may follow down the line. 
Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that the new Green Deal is coming up in the EU, and that means that we have a new legislation called EUDR, or European Deforestation Free Regulation. What is that, and how is that different from other legislations that we've seen in the past? An upgrade, I would say, in terms of the standards and what they're looking for. So it's no longer looking for just a level of legality or illegality on forest product sourcing, but it's also looking for sustainability criteria. And the EU in this space is basically saying, we don't want our markets and our businesses and value chains to be connected to products that are sourced from within and outside Europe, connected to levels of deforestation, which we are trying to tackle going forward as part of the broader climate and biodiversity crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what is really interesting is the fact that we're not just looking for forest-based products, we're not just looking for timber or paper, we're actually looking for a, a, a quite broad series of products that could contribute to deforestation. Yeah, that's right. So it picks up on non-timber forest products as well, such as rubber, which is still kind of significant for FSC. And then there are other agricultural type commodities, soy, palm oil, the two biggest, leather. The EU are very much focusing on what commodity sectors drive deforestation and trying to tackle that from a market-led perspective. Mm -hmm. Which, from our perspective, I guess is really interesting because we're also trying from a high-level perspective to tackle deforestation. But what is the gap between what we know is there today and then FSC as it currently is? We are in the final weeks of hopefully the the trilogues that take place in terms of the negotiation of the EU institutions. So we don't know where the EUDR will land. Of course, having followed it closely, we have some ideas. The biggest area we see is around this geolocation requirement, and in particular, the granularity at which the EUDR requests geolocation requirements, both in terms of scale, in terms of geographic scale, and in terms of scope, in terms of product scope. So if you, and in particular in this case, the challenge here is if you have a product that is mixed from a number of different sources, they would want in principle at the moment, the geolocations of every area that a product has a source from a forest management unit. They're looking at six kilometers, quite a granular level of detail. Mm -hmm, Yeah, which is a very big move from the current EUTR, which is looking at, do you know which region, which country your product is sourced from? Yeah, it's more specificity, but it's still risk-based ultimately. So where there is greater risk, that's when they want you to, in principle, again, go deeper into that kind of scale of geolocation. But as we've seen with the EU TR in particular, and having had experience there, most competent authorities or the most serious competent authorities are enforcing this pretty much as much detail as possible from the start. And currently FSC does not have this specific location reference for each individual product. That's what we have to say. So Kim, we've identified there's a gap between what FSC has today and what the upcoming legislation most likely will require. Why is it so important that FSC look into these kind of things when they occur? Well, let me first of all say there's a gap between what the new legislation requires and what anybody has. Nobody Mm -hmm. has this. I mean, no system has this anywhere in the world. Why is it important for FSC? Well, it's important because our customers, the certificate holders, at least inside Europe for the EU DR, but inside other geographies, 
for other legislations or if they're exporting into Europe from other locations, they will need to meet these new requirements one way or the other. So there will be a requirement on them insofar as they can use FSC to help them achieve some of what they are required to achieve, then that will be a benefit for them in terms of the certification. It will make certification meaningful for them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important for us, partly because we think it's the right way to go, and partly also because it's what our certificate holders will need to meet in terms of requirements going forward. Mm -hmm. But what can we actually do, and and what what do we impact do when we hear about these kind of initiatives? Well, I think in the first instance, I mean, we don't know where it's going to land specifically, so we don't yet know exactly what we're going to do. But we have already agreed with the FSC board that we will have a discussion in March where we will have prepared our input in terms of what is it that we can do in our systems to actually make it easier for our certificate holders to meet the requirements. That would be to do with new technologies. Can we speed up our introduction of blockchain as sort of a supply chain checking mechanism? Can we set in new requirements in the chain of custody standard that will be revised next year that will then help certificate holders, both in terms of what information they have about where they source from and how that gets transported through the supply chain? So that discussion we expect will come in March. At that time, we will know where the legislation has landed and we will be able to, based on that, look at our technology, our rules, and see how can they be adapted to actually fit the new requirements. Mm -hmm. Can we do that every single time a new legislation comes up? The EUDR is a big thing. I mean, this is a big market. It's many countries. We have many of our certificate holders in this region. So I think that in itself is an important event. I find it quite likely that the EUDR will be looked at in other jurisdictions as well, and that the American legislation, Australian, Japanese, etc., will also eventually adapt to something in the same direction. That's not a given, but I would expect that to be quite likely. I mean, I'm not saying that we will absolutely do this. I'm not saying that we already know that the EUDR will be the thing for us, but I'm saying that it is an important new impetus and an important new influence in our system. And we have many customers in this region. And therefore, I think it is important that we look at what can we do uh, to help. So I think you have to look at this at two different levels. We have a system that is built upon a set of standards and requirements. They are going to be systematic as a global standard. We have to look at how they applied across the globe. But then we also have the kind of layer on top, which is about our infrastructure and our architecture to support our certificate holders in particular to meet the requirements through things like blockchain, Wood ID. So they were kind of developing things uh, architecturally and the standards, the relevant standards that may need to be updated are also opportunistically just opening up for revision periods. Timing is good for these things at the moment because I think we can look at whether the architecture is fit for purpose as well as the set of standard requirements are fit for purpose and how the two complement each other. We may not be able to set the standards that completely fill all the gaps in EUDR, but if we can enable the architecture to help our certificate holders to meet those requirements outside of the FSC standards, then that may also be a a way forward as well. So that's the kind of things I think we need to look at over the next year in particular. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that a lot of our certificate holders and a lot of potential certificate holders will look to FSC to help them solve this issue, how, how to get there, how to comply. And Kim, as a system, do we applaud new regulations as they come up or do we have an opinion on 
whether there should be regulations on these kind of areas. We as an organization think it's very important to combat deforestation to fight against conversion. And this is what the EU new regulation set out to do. And, and that is very applaudable, I would say, and something that we have supported through our engagement with the EU institutions over several years. I think it's important in this context to also understand that certification, including FSC, has been strongly criticized by environmental NGOs and others for years now for not providing the solution that they have been calling for. This is partly based on a misunderstanding that we sort of see ourselves as the solution, which we don't. We want governments to actually come up with regulations, to come up with the rules and that, that sort of set the framing for, for companies. What we do is to provide tools then for our certificate holders to be able to meet those requirements. That is our role. So that misunderstanding, I hope will go away and I hope it will be seen that we are not trying to replace government regulation, but are trying to support it. Mm -hmm. Well, what will happen then if we see a future where we have a lot of these different legislations and regulations coming up in different regions, where we see a lot of them being very similar? Just like you said, it's not a given that Japan, for example, will adopt the exact same definition of what is sustainable forest management, for example, as the EU now does. What would then happen for our system and our certificate holder, if we try to adjust, wouldn't that make it endlessly complex? I think we should see our, our system at two levels. I think that's what Anand was saying before also. Mm -hmm. uh, one level, which is the rules, the rules that everybody must comply with. That's an important level, but that should be flexible enough so that even though the rules may be slightly different between Europe and Japan, as you mentioned, then you can still meet our requirements. But then another set, is then the offerings that we have in terms of solutions that you can use, technology solutions, et cetera, that are not necessarily a rule that you have to do it this way specifically, but are an offering that if you want to comply with these rules, then we have these tools for you. And we could maybe have different tools for Japan than we do for, for Europe. That I don't know, but that could be the case. Mm -hmm. Is there some times where we shouldn't adjust, where we shouldn't make sure that our system is the way that that you can use? We should not, certainly not automatically adjust our compliance rules to what any government would say, because that, that might create problems for people in other jurisdictions, and that's not what we want. But we should probably look at what comes and then say, can we develop an offering that is not a, a mandatory measure, but an offering to certificate holders in those areas to actually meet the requirements? We have a lot of more preparedness now, I think, to look at the kind of pipeline, if you like, of government legislations that we're doing. And that's, I think the, the work we've done in Europe in particular shows that if we're a bit closer to the ground in our approach to tracking this type of societal expectations, let's say through government policies in particular, and societal expectations and market expectations are becoming much more kind of closely aligned over time. So yeah, I think what we need to do is look at how we can enable our people across the world to track and monitor relevant regulations or legislations or even initiatives, government type initiatives that will have an impact on us and just assess them on a kind of coordinated basis as well. Mm -hmm. But Anand, do you think, is it our responsibility as a system to always ensure that there's a green lane for our products? For example, in the EU, should we apply to be a green lane for everyone who is FSC certified so that it's easier for them to get their products on the market? We are not applying for any kind of green lane status in any legislations around the world. We don't lobby for it. 
in some legislations, like in Australian, the timber regulation in Australia, they assess the standards themselves as green lanes, but that's not something we lobbied for. However, what's happening in the wider world is that societal expectations are, again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, moving. And here there is a, an expectation from society that actually it's businesses that source specifically in value chains should take responsibility for what's happening in their value chain more and more. And therefore, giving systems like ours a green lane potentially takes some of that responsibility away from businesses. And that's what society and consumers in particular don't want to see. They want businesses to be seen as using the best tools available to enable their responsibilities and their integrity of their value chains. And that systems like ours, FSC, can do that. But I think overall, consumers want businesses to take and to have that responsibility because it's much clearer then who owns responsibility for the connections and the relations that they have in specific value chains. Basically, if I sum that up, what you're saying is that we as a system, just like society, actually don't want to give our certificate holders that very easy access to just, here's a green lane, just prescribe FSC, then you're all good. We actually want them to learn about their supply chains. We want them to know where they're sourcing from and take responsibility of where they're sourcing from. Is that your point? Yeah, that's a big part of it. The FSC system is also set up in a way that it helps connect the value chain in a credible way. And I, we want our certificate holders to get access and to share that data through your value chain so that they know exactly impacts and effects they're having in the value chain themselves. Mm -hmm. Kim, that actually then brings me uh, to you because it started lurking in my mind. You said, nobody's ready for this. It's what we're doing already and what governments are now trying to expect from systems like ours or for companies in general. Is there a class there? From my perspective, there's no doubt that we are the best system out there anyway, already. But What's really exciting about the EUDR is that the EU institutions are trying to, to open new ground and trying to take new kinds of initiatives that nobody has tried before, neither we nor anybody else. And I think at this point in time, nobody really knows how we're going to do this, how we're going to actually get the geolocation data in mixed products, in big mainstream supply chains to actually function. I don't think anybody knows that, but I think we have a basis as a system for being able to actually provide some tools that will help our certificate holders get to be able to meet the requirements that, that will come up. We should not see ourselves as just lagging behind because we're not. Nobody else is ahead of us. The only thing that's ahead of us is new thinking. And that new thinking, I believe we can actually provide tools to meet the expectations of that new thinking. And I think that's the opportunity we have going forward. Mm -hmm. It's completely in line with our strategy, the thinking that they actually have. Absolutely. It's, it's exactly what we want to do. It's exactly the kind of role we want to have to enable governments to set the rules that they think are the right ones to set, to enable companies to meet or certificate holders to meet those requirements. We do not want to be a automatic seal of approval. We don't want to have this green lane that the NGOs are criticizing us for wanting. We don't want that. What we want is to be a system that can be used by governments as a complement to what they set up and be used by certificate holders to meet the requirements they need to meet. Mm -hmm. We focused a lot on EU now because, well, there's a lot of legislations coming up here, but is legislation actually the only way of doing things? Is that the only thing that we're seeing in and outside of the EU? Not at all. 
I think what's happening in the EU right now is extremely exciting because they are, they are sort of paving new ways and, and, and trying to get things done in, in different ways than we've seen before. But this would not have happened if there were not, you could say, civil society actions, if there were not also company actions to move in this direction. And we see outside of Europe that it's not necessarily the government driving developments. It's very often corporations driving developments. It's NGOs or coalitions of different civil society groups driving developments. And I think that's extremely important for us as a system. I mean, we are very much, you could say, a convening factor between these different interests. And in many countries, that's exactly what we're trying to do. So for instance, this year, I, I've been involved in initiatives in Mexico to try and see, can we persuade the Mexican government to set up new incentives, fiscal incentives, so tax breaks and stuff like that, to help communities and to help companies in the supply chain to actually move further. I hope that will be successful and we see similar initiatives in, in other countries like Guatemala and other countries around the world. So there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of actors who can drive developments, sometimes governments, sometimes civil society sometimes corporations. And I think it's all something that we need to work with and we do. So Anand, I'm assuming that in your small team within FSC, where you also have EU advocacy sitting, you have quite some important and exciting months and, and quarters coming up as this new regulations finalizes and we get to know the final tax, etc. What are the next important deadlines and what are the next important things that you will be doing? I guess we're waiting for this external deadline first and foremost. And then 2023 is very much uh, kind of connected to what Kim said. It's about learning what the gaps are in detail a bit more because of the EUDR and other legislation. So we can take a kind of more holistic view. But also then one of the things that we're planning in kind of Q1, Q2 next year is to understand a bit more about this geolocation requirement as well and play a role in supporting and bring in convening and kind of bring in different players together who can help, I guess, get some more learning and granularity and understanding. Because what will likely happen is for the EUDR, for instance, once the EUDR is published as a regulation for the EU, that's kind of like uh, the set of principles of what the EU wants, the policy objectives that the EU want to introduce and kind of set for in a, in a, in a year or two down the line. But there will be a set of kind of what the EU calls implementing and delegated acts which are connected to the EU DR, which are the more detailed aspects of how is that geolocation going to look and what are the expectations on scale, scope of companies for geolocation as well. And that's something that we think through convening events, bringing people together, that we can play a really important role, especially with our kind of key partnerships that we're creating in that space. Mm -hmm. So we're actually going to try and influence or give input into what will then the specific text and the specific implementation regulation look like. Is that what you're saying? Yes, for sure. I mean, there's a set of expectations from civil society in terms of what they think is right on paper, but there's also a set of business realities on the ground and to see, you know, what is uh, viable economically, socially, ecologically as well in those value chains as well. And I guess that that's what we try to bring together always in a system uh, as well to, to ensure that there's high levels of standards or high levels of requirements can be set for, in this case, geolocation, but they are implementable across a, a wider scope of business models in particular. 
if this gap analysis with the geo-referencing, is that the only gap analysis that we'll be looking into in Q1, Q2 next year? That's one that we already know about. However, in Q1 and Q2 next year, one of the other pieces of work that we're doing is kind of a broader piece of mapping our set of standards and our architecture according to a broader suite of European regulations that ha- will have an impact on our system. There's one, for instance, called the EU taxonomy, which is around sustainable investments, helping the finance community to invest in sustainable business models and value chains. So that's another one. But we've kind of identified five or six EU initiatives in particular that will have some kind of effect on FSE system in one way or another. And we're just kind of looking to understand that in much more detail. Mm-hmm. And I guess we're focusing so much on the EU because a lot is going on in the EU right now. But and, and it sounds like we're expecting that a lot of what's going on, a lot of the definitions made in the EU, we're expecting for that to be really looked to and copy-pasted in other regions and therefore have a, a global relevance as well when we look further ahead into the future. Yes, that's one aspect. The second aspect is that, I mean, uh, the way that the FSC system has evolved and developed are still a significant number of our downstream certificate holders are in Europe. And many of those companies in Europe will have to meet these requirements. Many of those certificate holders will be sourcing from outside of Europe as well. So they will want to have access to a system like ours to use to understand risk, not just understand it, but assess it and then also mitigate risk using the FSC system as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And because so many of our certificate holders are from Europe and a lot is supplying into Europe, I'll also be following this quite closely. I actually already have a follow-up episode planned with Matteo, who is our EU advocacy officer and an external expert. Once we have the final text for EUDR and once we know more about what will the impacts be on FSC, so that we can get more into the grains of, well, what do you then actually do as a certificate holders? And then do you, do you and your team have other uh, engagement points planned already where certificate holders and members can keep up with all of these developments? Where do we point to as the best sources of information? What are we planning to do? We have some information available on our website in terms of EU Green Deal in particular. We're just looking to see how we evolve that as well, according to the new website as, as well. So most of our positions, at least kind of advocacy positions are there and we're, uh, we're working with our performance and standards unit as well. You know, that's, they'll play an important part in understanding the system requirements and how these things will affect our system. So as we find out more there, we'll make more available. We use the, the regional meetings that come up as well. Uh, that will come up next year as a way to, to engage with members. There will be some town halls with members as well. We may find some opportunities to speak to our members on, but, you know, we're open to suggestions and ideas as well to do that. Mm-hmm. But we also take opportunities for for external events. So yesterday, for instance, Matteo was presenting at a, a conference in Brussels organized by the, the European Paper Association, CEPI, and he was speaking on this very subject yesterday, trying to similar type of conversation, how is FSE set up for the future regulations that are on the horizon? Mm-hmm. So really trying to do a lot of different things. Kim, I'll give you the final question so you get to wrap all of this up. I'd actually like for, for you to zoom out and, and dream big a bit, you know, how I like to end on that. So we're seeing legislators step up now. We're seeing them put more rules into law. If you are to dream big, what does the perfect balance for you between legislations and systems like FSC look like? Well, the perfect balance looks like legislators get their 
intentions clear in terms of what the rules should be, what the requirements are that they would like to see, that that fits with what consumers want so that there's a a, uh, harmony between the government requirements and what consumers want, that companies want to move in that direction and we have then provided tools for them to actually be able to do that. We should not take the responsibility of governments, we should not take the responsibility of companies, but we can provide tools to both sides to actually be able to do that. Time-wise, I think this fits very nicely with our development. I mean, we are in a process of moving away from being a 1990s paper-based system to actually become a digitized system for the uh, 2020s and maybe even the 2030s. And I think this could be a great development for us to actually move or upgrade our systems to be able to actually meet these requirements that come from the policymakers. That's it. Thank you to Kim and Anand for giving us a bit of insights into the world of advocacy on a global and regional level and how important it is for FSC not only to keep up to speed on legislations coming up, but also get involved in the debate. As mentioned, we will do another episode on this topic once we know the final text for EUDR and therefore know the rules that many of our certificate holders will have to adhere to, because then we can get much more tangible on what will FSC do and how can we support. Until then, let's just rejoice ourselves in Kim's words that we are actually the best system out there. And what we're seeing from governments and regulatory entities right now around the world is really a major shift that is completely in line with what we want to achieve as a system and will hopefully bring us closer to a world where we do actually halt deforestation and mitigate climate change. Of course, we need to be the tool, the best tool out there that can support our certificate holders in complying with legislations coming up, but we also need our certificate holders and all companies out there to take responsibility for supply chains and know where things are coming from. And the legislation that we're seeing is bringing us closer to that point in time. Remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future if you want to get notified of new episodes where we dive into other innovations within FSC and the world of certification and sustainable forest management. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I'm Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future. <laughs>